Hello everyone and welcome back to The World's Last Night. My name is James Thayer. Today we are actually going to start a new book and I'm skipping way ahead. I mean, we did Genesis, we did Exodus, and now we're actually going to do Revelation. And the reason I am choosing this book to uh, do next is because a few months ago, my wife was asking me questions about it. And frankly, in the past, like I've read Revelation a few times, I actually love a lot of aspects to it, and I've never found it to be like a weird thing. Um, and I know a lot of people that do think it's weird, and they avoid reading it um, because they think they well they won't be able to understand any of it, and um, that it's too you know scary or whatever. And so I thought, well, let me just go through it and try to maybe dispel some of those concerns. I think the biggest issue with reading Revelation is uh, probably twofold. One is looking too much into things um, and trying to guess times and signs and things within our modern day. And two, which is, you know, the same as that is uh, just the fact that there is so much symbolism and that symbolism is primarily Old Testament focused. The book of Revelation, like, Every other verse references an Old Testament verse, roughly. Um, I'm being quite literal with that. Um, out of like all the verses in Revelation, it's like 68% or 70% of them reference an Old Testament passage. So unless you are a Jewish scholar, this book is going to be hard for you to understand. Um, but if you know the Old Testament really well, or if you are you know, one of the people that John might be writing this letter to of Revelation 2, who are all mostly, anyways, Jews converted to Christianity, then this book might make a lot more sense to you than to ourselves, who have grown up with a very Christian framework, New Testament-centered centered and focused uh, worldview of interpreting Scripture. Now, uh, Revelation itself um, is... God's message to his church. And the first, I think, four chapters are actually specifically to seven churches that lived during John's time. So let me back up a little bit. Um, John is the one who we believe wrote Revelation, and he was a disciple of Jesus, one of the first 12 apostles of Jesus, the only one that we believe was not martyred. But rather, we believe he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Patmos was a really small, uh, like 10-mile by 4-mile wide um, island. It's where they mined marble, and so people who were being punished by the Roman Empire would be exiled there, and they would be forced to mine marble. Now, by the time John is there, he's really up in age. We have some church tradition that says he was exiled, some church tradition um, believes that he was just there ministering to people who were uh, in prison there. I actually personally believe that he was actually exiled. Uh, and there's a good reason at the end of John's gospel, I believe it's at the end of John's gospel, Jesus basically says like to the rest of the disciples, what's it to you if I want this man to see uh, basically me coming back or whatever? Um, it's a little bit mystical, but uh there, the, Jesus basically, what I'm saying is Jesus basically like prophesied that this would occur. Um, and sorry about all the kids yelling. That would be my two daughters plus uh, Lindley who's staying with us. I guess they're having a really fun time outside in the living room. 
So uh, John is exiled on Patmos, and then he receives this revelation, um, which is an apocalypse. Now, that's all that uh, apocalypse translations to is revelation. So it's nothing to be, it's not like, you know, we call it end of the world. You know, when we use the word apocalypse, we always think end of the world because, well, revelation talks about the end of the world. But if you think about it more in the terms of this is God trying to reveal something to us, it's a little bit less scary because that's all apocalypse really means is revelation. And as we're going to find in verse one of chapter one, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we'll start reading, and I'll do my best to tell you what I think things mean. Um, I'll just go ahead and tell you that, like, I don't have all the answers. Again, this has never been something that bothers me. Like, the end of the world has never bothered me. Um, And so I don't look for signs and stuff uh, to see it coming. So uh, if I read Revelation and and there's a part of it I don't quite understand, I'm mostly just sort of shoulder shrug, uh, which might annoy people. But I will do my best at least to give you my thoughts on it. So here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. So this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, and it's in in two different ways you can interpret this. One, this is a revelation that reveals Jesus, which is true. The, The book of Revelation is all about Jesus. You can't miss that. It's not really about the end of the world. It's it's about Christ him establishing his kingdom. Now, you can also say this is a revelation that Jesus handed John while he was on Patmos. And so John is writing this. Verse uh, 1b, he sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave, John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ in all he saw. So it's saying Jesus sent this revelation about himself, he signified it, which means that he made it known through symbols, which you're going to see the whole book is about symbols, um, and gave it through his angel to his slave, John, or his servant, bond servant, John. So John's writing this down, and he's, you'll find out in a little bit, he's sending it to seven churches. Verse three, blessed is the one who reads And blessed are those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it, because the time is near. This reveals a couple things to us. One, reading this book comes with a blessing. If you read this book, you'll be blessed. If you listen to people reading this book, you will be blessed. Now, it says it's uh, words of prophecy. Prophecy, as I've been more leaning towards and learning from one of my friends um, who has the gift of prophecy, is not necessarily about predicting the future, although that is part of it. Um, It's primarily about revealing the heart of God or being a spokesperson for God. So John, in this instance, is being a spokesperson for God. Part of this book, like I said, actually pertains to John's present day, and part of the book pertains to the future. Both are considered prophecy because both are a message from God. The second thing to to take from verse 3 is that the time is near, What is the time? Well, it's going to be this time of the revealing of Jesus Christ in the way that we are going to find in Revelation, which is his return to establish his kingdom. It is near, near is relative, but um, you, you, Jesus basically said in the Gospels that if you knew whenever he would return, you would um, probably have things in order, but 
you don't. And so no matter how you are going about life, you always have to be ready for Christ to be returning. Uh, you always have to be in good shape for him to basically, if you were to borrow an analogy, if you were a guard in the military, um, you don't want to be sleeping on the job when Jesus comes to inspect your work. You want to be doing what he has called you to do when he returns, which could be before you even finish this podcast. So verse four, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So Asia in this uh, in, in what John knows it to be, is talking about the Asian province of the Roman Empire, which would actually be part of Turkey. It's not China, it's not India, it's, it's just part of Turkey, a much smaller portion um, of the continent. And there are seven churches that are established there, and so John is sending this message to those seven churches. And he goes on to say, Grace and peace to you from the one who is who was, and who is coming. So this is a great, beautiful depiction of God as the one who is presently, who has always been, and who is coming back. So I guess more specifically, this is talking about Jesus. It's a reflection of John 1, which is, happens to be another book that John wrote, um, talking about how in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. All things were made by him, through him, for him. Talking about Jesus Christ having always existed. So, uh and then it goes on to say, from the seven spirits before his throne. And so this is sort of a weird translation for me, um, but I'll just tell you what most people say. Now, another translation for this, which I think would be even, which would be better um, for us to use, would be the sevenfold spirit instead of the seven spirits. Um, and so the seven spirits, um, or the seven spirits, sold- Sevenfold Spirit is a reference to an Old Testament passage, and I forget the book. Um, let's see, I have it written down. Um, there's too many notes on this book. Is. Oh, I can't find it. There's an Old Testament passage that basically says that the. It describes the Holy Spirit. I think it's in Isaiah. It describes the Holy Spirit as having um, seven different aspects um, to him. So this isn't, most people will tell you this isn't like seven different spirits. This is just the Holy Spirit of God before the throne and from Jesus Christ. So, uh, and then he goes on to say the faithful witness. And then that word witness can also be translated um, into martyr. So the faithful martyr, the faithful witness. So right here you have a very soft pitch of the doctrine of the Trinity, um, which isn't laid out systematically like we lay it out today, but I think it's pretty obvious that this is who God is. You have God the Father, you have the Spirit, and you have Jesus Christ. All right, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So two fantastic titles given to Jesus here. First, he's the firstborn from the dead, which means that he was the first to be resurrected. And what that gives us is great hope that we will follow in that in that stead, that we will then be resurrected like he was resurrected from the dead. And then the secondly, it calls him the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
meaning there is no one above him. And as you'll find in Revelation, Christ comes to the earth to establish his kingdom and every king or ruler of this world must bow to him. So it goes on to say, to him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it talks about Christ's love for us. So to him who loves us and has set us free, set us free. Another um, translation of that is has washed us. So has washed us from our sins or set us free from our sins by his blood. So it is through Christ's atonement that we find forgiveness for our sins. It, it, he was the spotless lamb that was sacrificed in our stead, took the punishment that we deserved. And because of him, we are whether you translate this in two different ways, either free from our sins or washed from our sins, we are purified. And then he goes on to say, he's made us a kingdom and priests. Now, another translation is made us kings and priests to his God and Father. So because of this atonement and because of our redemption, Christ has made us kings, which makes us, uh, gives us authority to rule. Paul says, you know, don't be ignorant. Don't you know that you will rule? Uh, angels one day, judge angels, and then additionally to be priests, which means we are servants given a special position of uh, as servants to God the Father. Now, interesting thing about this is these two offices were always separated in the Old Testament, so for Jews reading this, this is very interesting because you did not have kings that also um, were priests of God and were able to make sacrifices, for example, you find um, the issue with Samuel and Saul, and Saul doesn't wait for Samuel and uh, to sacrifice before going into battle, and he does it himself, and this was horribly displeasing to God and costs Saul his uh, rule. And there was another Uzziah, I forget which one, there was another ruler in the Old Testament too that did the same exact thing. So uh, it's changed under the New Testament where Christ is make, makes us both kings and priests. And so this is a very interesting aspect to um, this passage. And then it goes on to say, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Which is beautiful because that's what he rightfully possesses, both dominion and glory. Um, so I found my verse, the seven spirits, the sevenfold spirit is Isaiah 11.2. And in that verse, it says, um, the spirit of the Lord. So that's one description of the spirit shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, that's the second, and understanding, that's the third. The spirit of counsel, that's the fourth, and might, fifth. The spirit of knowledge, sixth, and, and, and fear of the Lord, seven. So these are seven aspects of the Holy Spirit um, that are found in Isaiah eleven two, describing the sevenfold spirit before the throne in this first part of Revelation. So this is why it's difficult for the modern Christian that doesn't study um, the Old Testament a lot and also hasn't grown up in a you know, rabbinical uh, school to interpret the Old Testament. It's hard for us to understand Revelation because things like that get missed. You're like, seven spirits of God? And it's like, no, this is just a sevenfold spirit of God or the, or the seven aspects of the spirit of God. All right, let's move on. So um, verse seven, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him including those who pierced him, and all the families of the earth will mourn over him, 
This is certain. Amen. So these are actually uh, uh, Old Testament um, prophecy, uh, Daniel seven thirteen, um, and another one. But basically, these descriptions of Christ coming back at the end of time are uh, John is borrowing from other aspects of Scripture. Um, what else? Okay. It says, including those who pierced him. Now, some people translate this to mean the Jewish people. Even though physically Rome pierced him, the the Jews are the ones that had him crucified. If you remember, Pontius Pilate didn't want to have him crucified. And yet the Pharisees and the mob kept telling him that they need to crucify him. And so that's kind of sad. Um, But... What it basically shows is that these people, the Jewish people, uh, will see him and be counted with the rest. And we have these hints in Scripture that one day Israel will recognize Jesus as the Messiah, or at least a remnant will. And so they're not discounted from, uh, they're not discounted from salvation. And so it goes on to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. So Alpha and Omega, Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So another way to translate this would be from I am the A to Z, or I am the beginning to end. Uh, So the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. So there's a whole lot of like grand descriptions of God, Uh, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Father. Uh, And I think that's one of my favorite things about Revelation. It's so triumphant. I love the descriptions of Jesus coming back. So here we go. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance in Jesus, was on the islands called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. So it could be, A, he was being persecuted because he was preaching the word, or B, he was there preaching the gospel. I lean towards A. And then he goes on to say, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So he is in the spirit, which is a little bit mystical, sort of reminds me of the avatar state from Avatar. Um, But he's in a place uh, worshiping God, basically uh, raptured by the Holy Spirit, and he's in a place where he might receive this great revelation. So he hears a loud voice. It's like a sound of a trumpet, which gets your attention. And it says, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So these seven churches are named. And that is why uh, the first roughly four chapters where we are looking at these letters to the seven churches, um, seem to apply specifically to the people living at the time John is writing this letter. And so this portion is not prophetic in a predictive way. It says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the son of man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a fiery flame, his feet like fine bronze fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. 
In his right hand he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. So these descriptions of Jesus in his glorified state are over, overwhelming. So we'll talk about a couple of them. Jesus is actually going to give a interpretation for this uh, vision here in a minute anyway. Um, he sees seven gold lampstands, and among these is basically Jesus, or he says, one like the Son of Man. Now, Son of Man is prophetic from the book of Daniel, talking about, I saw one like the Son of Man coming on clouds of fire. When Jesus called himself Son of Man, the, that was more offensive to the Jews of his day than Son of God, because they all believed they were sons of God. But Son of Man is like an office, a predictive office that Christ was claiming to have fulfilled and, uh, and did. So uh, that's pretty huge. It says he's dressed in a long robe with gold sash, so he's dressed beautifully. Uh, his hair is white as wool, white as snow, and so that signifies that he is wise. Uh, his eyes like a fiery flame, meaning that he is the one that sees through and judges. His feet like fi bronze fired in a furnace, saying that he has basically been tested. He's passed through trials, passed through the refining fire, has been found pure. His voice is like the sound of cascading waters. So I don't really understand what the translation of that would be, but it sounds really cool to me. In his right hand, he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We'll get to the seven stars in a second, but the two-edged sword um, came a sharp two-edged sword, basically saying that like that is, that is God's uh, weapon. That's how he gets things done is by his word. It's not a physical sword coming out of his mouth. It is that his words are like a two-edged sword. His face was shining like the sun at midday, meaning like you couldn't look at the thing. Like his face was so bright, like the sun, you would have to advert your eyes. So this is what John is saying. And he goes on in verse 17, he says, when I saw him, I felt his feet like a dead man. Like what else would, the, would a human be able to do other than to fall at Christ's feet in all his glory? He laid in his right, then he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So who has the keys to hell? Jesus Christ, who died, but he rose again, and now he lives forever and ever. It's a beautiful description of the authority Christ has over death now because he's overcome it, and likewise, hell itself cannot avail itself against him. He goes on to say, therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. And if we back up a little bit, it should, we should note that though John fell down like a dead man, he was afraid. Uh, Christ laid his hand on him and said, don't be afraid. So Christ is the one that lifts his head. Now it says, therefore, write in what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. So some of this, basically Jesus is saying, you know, you're going to write about what you have seen. You're going to write about what is now, and you're going to write about what will take place after this. So the book of Revelation is... Uh, for the present, for the past, for the present audience of John, and also for the future. This is the secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and of the seven gold lampstands is this. So Jesus is giving an interpretation of the vision to John, which benefits us as being quite ignorant. Uh, he says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, there's nothing mystical about this. You look at a few verses back, he actually tells us what the seven churches are. Literally, they're physically in John's day, Ephesus, Smyrna, 
Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So he is showing himself in the midst of these seven churches, which these golden lampstands represent. And likewise, uh, the stars, the seven stars, represent the angels of the seven churches. Another translation or a literal translation would be messengers. So some people say this is the pastors or the head leaders of these churches. So, so far, let's just, you know, there's nothing to, to, to freak out about this book, right? So far, it's grounded. You have Christ uh, in his glorified form. He is commanding John to write down what he sees or what he reveals to him or revelation or apoc apocalypse, right? And by the way, you need to send this to seven churches. So in episode two, in chapter two, we are actually going to get to read some of the words that Christ has for these specific seven churches at this specific time in history. That doesn't mean that we can't learn from them, obviously. Like we can actually learn a lot from uh, these letters of critique that John is sending to these churches. And we'll do that the next time on The World's Last Night.